Well, it's still Christmas, and we observe that this very evening, and our lessons continue to speak about the gift that we have been given in the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. If you think about the Gospels, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you can think about how they begin, then you know that Matthew begins by giving Jesus genealogy, um, you know, where he came from, who are his human ancestors. Uh, Luke backs it up even further and traces it even further back. Mark seems to be mostly interested to get quickly into the life of Jesus after his birth. And John, who probably was the last, which probably is the last gospel to be written, the, the last person to write one of the four canonical gospels, you know, it's hard not to think maybe he sat down and said, where will I begin? And he said, I know where I'll begin in the beginning. I'll go back to where it all started. And so our reading tonight from the Gospel of John gives us opportunity to take the long view, if you will, about the person of Jesus Christ. That by the time that child was born in a stable in Bethlehem, that there were already countless ages, countless ages, (laughs) that he had been the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so John begins by pointing this out to us. It's an an interesting reading, and I hope my reading of it did a little bit of justice to it, because there's kind of three sections of teaching punctuated by a couple of points of talking about John the Baptist, right? So there's a sense of where we're learning all these profound things, and then John the writer says, oh, and there was this man sent from God, and his name was John, right? I mean, like, There, in verse 6, we get something as mundane as a reference to a man named John, and an odd man at that, right? The guy who likes to live out in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, eating honey and locusts and wearing camel hair. And then we get a similar thing that the translations these days, especially the ESV beginning at verse 15, puts parentheses around it. Right? Oh, John bore witness about him because, again, we're talking about these lofty things, and then we zero back in on this very earthly thing, this very earthly person of John and his role in relationship to Jesus. But, but John, the gospel writer, begins in verses 1 through 4 by establishing two things. One, the word, the logos in Greek, the word has always been with God. The implication means that the Logos has always been with God the Father, but he is not the Father. So we begin with a bit of a Trinitarian lesson that the word who has been since the beginning was with God and he was God, but he is not the same as the other person whom we refer to and confess as God the Father. So, The word has always been there, but lest we commit a Trinitarian heresy, we don't want to equate the two. We don't want to say that there's one God in three modes or something like that, but instead we refer to them as persons, and the the Nicene Creed, of course, is built around those persons. And so the word has always been with God the Father, but he is not the Father. So John says that's the first thing you need to know if you want to think about who this Logos is, who the word is, who Jesus is. The second thing he wants us to learn there in verses 1 through 4, is that this word, Jesus, made all things, and he sustains all things by giving them life. 
So Jesus has always been there from the beginning, and that's not a time reference there, right? There was no beginning with God. There's never been a time when he was not, but the word has been there. Jesus, God, the son, if you will, has been there. And what has he been doing, if you were wondering? Well, he made all things and he sustains all things. So let us not only give thanks for God's making of things, but his sustaining of things. I appreciate it every day when I wake up and I'm alive that God sustains that which he has made. So that's the first two things that John wants to teach us in the first four verses. And then we get that reference to John, the Baptist. And then John, the gospel writer, comes back in verse 9 through 13 and shifts back into that kind of theological mode, if you will. Now he's going to back out again and continue to talk about this word, this logos. And here he wants to teach us uh, three things. First, the word is the true light that illumines everything. We've picked up on that in some of our uh, hymnody tonight. The word is the true light that illumines everything. The word as the light enlightens every person in their reason and in their conscience. I think that's what John's getting at. Look, he's always been there with God the Father. He has created everything and sustains it, and he is the true light that is illuminating everything. Right, So that sense that every person down in their reasoning and their conscience has this sense of God, that that is what the word has been doing from the beginning. Justin Martyr, um, a third century theologian, called it the seed of the logos. That within every person there's this seed of the logos, and it's that seed of the logos in all of us that it's even why non-Christians can come to the truth. Right? How did, how did pagan philosophers sometimes get it right? Well, because they had the seed of the Logos in them. They had the light of the word in them. Right? How do, how do non-Christians come across the truth and hold it as the truth? And it is, in fact, the truth. Again, because the word is the light that enlightens everything. God has self-revealed. He is self-revealed, that he has made himself known within the soul of each person as the divine word. But not everyone, of course, recognizes this light for what it is. Right? These days, we like to think, it may be always, I don't know why I said these days, I mean, we like to be right. Right? Do we not? We like to think that we are right about things. And for some reason, we like to think that we have figured these things out sometimes even on our own. Like, I understand, I have come to, I have seen, but yet there within each person, Christian or non-Christian, is the light, the true light that illumines everything, the word. That's been his job. But the second thing John wants us to know from these verses, that there was one nation that in particular was particularly and especially prepared to receive this light in its fullness. So the, the light of the word is there in everyone. It's in all creation. But, but Israel received this light in a measure so full as to be called God's very own people. Right? That as we think about the salvation history narrative of the scriptures, that God makes everything, that he sustains everything. We see that in the beginning text of Genesis, in the beginning chapters of Genesis. And then in Genesis 12, God calls the people of Abraham, the family of Abraham, in particular, to receive this light. And God prepares them as 
Galatians reminds us, our reading from Galatians tonight, that he prepares them through the law, through Moses and the prophets to receive this light. And if we think back to the Old Testament text, if you can think with me for a moment, back into the, to Israel's history, after their deliverance from Egypt, God reveals himself as what? As a light and a voice to Moses. And Moses himself becomes a shiny person, right? Kind of reflecting this light to everyone who looks upon him. So the word is the true light that illumines everything. He's, he's the seed so that all people can come to a knowledge of the truth. But then yet, in particular, Israel has been called out to be God's special people, that they in particular have received the light of Christ, the light of the word in such a measure as to be God's very own people. And then the last thing in that section, 9 through 13, uh, John wants us to know is that those who received him become the children of God, right? So Israel in particular has been prepared. He came into the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, John writes, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. And so everyone who receives him becomes a child of God. And that in particular is what Paul wants to communicate to us in the Galatians reading tonight. If you were attending to that as Betsy read, we heard word, phrases like this, in Christ Jesus you are all sons, and of course daughters by extension of God, that you are, you are to receive as adoption as sons because you are sons. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son then an heir. Right? So that language of Galatians 3, pregnant in, in beginning of chapter 4, pregnant with the, that familial language that, that those who receive God, who receive this light, the Son, become the children of God. And so we are sons and daughters of God. And I would encourage you to, when you, when you go home this evening or this week, look back at the collects for Christmastide. Look at the collect for Christmas Eve. Look at the collect for Christmas Day which is in the Book of Common Prayer, look at the collect for this first Sunday, and you'll see the language of light, and you'll see the language of adoption, and you'll see the, the language of sons and daughters. It's, it's there. It's, it's all of what John is telling us here in these verses. But beginning in John's third section at verse 14 through the end of our reading tonight, which is verse 18, there we get the Christmas story, if you will. Of course, this first part of John is not the Christmas story. It is the Christmas story. But, but there, beginning in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the nature of this particular season, Christmas and Christmastide, as we focus in on the word becoming flesh, taking the name Emmanuel, taking the name Jesus. And he was like us in all ways, yet without sin. That's what it means for Jesus to, have be, to come in the flesh. That he's like us. He would bleed like, he bled like us. He, he doubted like us. He wondered like us. He was limited in what he could know like us. I mean, he also could do miracles probably unlike most of us. And, and uh, he could do the kinds of things and knew the thoughts and intentions of the heart of, of people. But in all the ways that he was also God, he was... All, also man, and we need to remember that, that the word became flesh. And he did what? He dwelt or tabernacled among us. The word was so much like us that he lived among us and like us. That he, he came down to humankind in flesh 
and lived and, and ate and slept and played and thought and sweated and worked like every other human because that's what he was, a human. But there's more to it than just that. Not, not more to it in the sense of, you know, we need to somehow get beyond the fact that Jesus was human, but that in his humanity, he opens doors, he creates a world that didn't quite exist before his incarnation. And as he walked the earth as man, and, and John says that we beheld his glory, that he was not divested of his glory, that when he walked here as a man, they were the men and women who walked alongside him were able to behold his glory. So, so whatever his emptying of himself is that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, it was not his, his divinity. He still remained God. But by his remaining God and coming in the flesh, he's changed things. And this is something I think we need to realize about Christmas. That things have not been the same since the incarnation. And we know that's true in many ways, right? We've always been saved by Christ, but now we look back to the birth and crucifixion and resurrection of the man Jesus in ways that the Israelites of old had to look forward to. We look back to that. But what has changed is the fact that when he came down in the form of a man, when he came down as a human, he brought that glory that he possessed down with him, making him full of grace and truth, so much so that we, mere humans, receive, John tells us, grace upon grace. And this grace upon grace is not some sort of a vision, right? That's not what we see. For no one has ever seen God. John says that in verse 18. But no, it's not a vision. That's not what he brought with him. But what he has done in being the word made flesh is he has brought God to earth. That he has made known the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, he has established what we might call the sacramental principle. That God becoming human has elevated that which is material, which he made. Remember, this is what John's already told us. He made it. He sustains it. But by assuming it in his flesh, by tabernacling among us, Jesus has brought his glory in such a way that when we now take those things which are material, bread, wine, water, oil and do with them what he has told us to do they are no longer just bread and wine and water and oil they become the body and blood of christ and the waters of regeneration and baptism and the oil of the holy spirit is a sign of what he's done that's what the incarnation has done it has given us the right as his followers to take that which he's made and to use it to his honor and his glory. So as we maybe continue as 21st century Christians to be scandalized at the materiality of Christmas and the materialism of Christmas, at the same time, that materiality, these materials of bread and wine and water and oil, for example, 
are now able to be made possible to be turned into holy things, to be, to be turned into those things which are spiritualized, and they too convey grace upon grace to the followers of God. We went for a walk today as a family. My, my in-laws are in town, and they live in rural Pennsylvania. And so that, that only matters because as we were walking, the mail truck drove by us. My mother-in-law, like, stopped and kind of looked like, what? Sunday. And I said, yeah, I think Amazon works with, you know, the, the mail service as well to deliver things. So it's prime, you know, you, you, you pay for it to be there in two days, it's got to come in two days. And I just don't think they, they see that uh, where they live. Well, I know they don't have prime because they like to use our prime, but... Um, but they, they don't, you know, they, they, get, they, they were surprised by it. And, I, and it took me a moment because I take it for granted. Because the odd thing is, is we saw the mail truck and then we saw another truck, which was not one of those Amazon smiley face trucks, but it was delivering packages. And about 20 minutes after we got back home from our walk, it showed up at our front door uh, with a package for my nephew sent by someone in his family delivered to our house. But the point is, is like, yeah, I mean, not only was the mail truck out, but so was this other truck. Out delivering what? The things that we've purchased, right, that are going to show up after Christmas. And so, again, that sense that, like, not even the mailman can take the day off anymore, a Sunday off, right? We might be surprised, like my mother-in-law was, to see that. And, but I don't think we're surprised all that much anymore by the materialistic nature of the world in which we live. But in one sense, we should be, because that's what Christmas is all about. Not in the negative sense of materialism, wanting things just to have things, accumulating things out of avarice or greed, but that materiality is now, and it's never been bad, but now it's been made sacramental by the incarnation so that we can take these things, so that I, as called by a priest in God's church, with, with you with me, can, can take this bread and this wine tonight and it will become the body and blood through the work of God and the Holy Spirit. So Christmas, God with us in the flesh, is the foundation of our liturgy and worship life. And to be honest, with all due respect, I don't know what else you would be doing in church if you didn't see that. I just don't understand it. I mean, that's what the foundation of our worship life is all about, that we take mundane things, offer them to God, and he makes them spiritual things that convey grace upon grace to us. And so let this Christmas be a reminder to us that in the incarnation, Jesus has made it possible for us to worship in this way. And let us give thanks to him for that, let us not just rush quickly to give thanks for the gift of the Son because it makes possible our salvation, though it certainly does that, right? Let's not get so narrowed in on what God has done for me, for us, which is great. He's made us sons and daughters. John cares about that. But it's, it's more than that. It's bigger than that. But in, the, in this next moment, let me just say, but, but think about that as well. That by coming down to that which he's made, by assuming human flesh and tabernacling among us, by adopting us as his sons and daughters and making us heirs, what has he done with us that he does not also do with that bread and that wine and that water and that oil? 
He spiritualizes us. He turns us into his people. And in the same way, we offer these things to him to become something other than what they appear to be. We need to offer ourselves back to him so that he can make us and continue forming us into his true sons and daughters, into into sons and daughters who walk well with him, who obey him, who listen well to him. And so let us continue to celebrate the incarnation, not just this, because this Sunday happens to fall within Christmastide. Let us realize that the implications of Christmas reverberate way beyond 12 days. And may each time, particularly in the Holy Eucharist, when we offer this bread and wine to God, let us be reminded of the incarnation that in offering it back to God, that he, because of his gift to us, receives our gifts back to him. Then he turns them into his body and blood and feeds us. Grace upon grace. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.